There are seven deadly sins, Captain. Gluttony. Greed. Sloth. Wrath. Pride. Lust. And envy. Seven. Seven began its very disturbing life in the mid-1980s, when aspiring screenwriter Andrew Kevin Walker enrolled in Penn State University. A fan of the detective and horror genres, Walker was an attentive student of renowned lecturer Jeff Rush, whose book Alternative Scriptwriting, Writing Beyond the Rules, is a highly recommended touchstone for anyone interested in pursuing a career as a screenwriter. However, it is a little difficult to figure out just what else Walker absorbed from Rush, because upon graduating, Walker reckoned the best way to break into Hollywood was to go to New York and get a job working in Tower Records on 66th and Broadway. Walker reckoned his 40-hour work week would finance his writing. So, while he manned the cash register during the day, he worked the keyboard on his computer at night. And between those sessions, as he went to and from work, Walker could not help but notice a crack epidemic was gripping Manhattan, turning entire blocks into an open hell, where addicts and dealers alike were descending into every manner of vice and venality. All of which got Walker thinking, and he soon came up with an interesting premise about a serial killer. But by the time he had sketched his outline, developed the treatment, and finally finished the script, another similar-themed movie was already chilling audiences. Dr. Lecter, my name is Clarice Starling. May I speak with you? You're one of Jack Crawford's, aren't you? I am, yes. May I see your credentials? Certainly. Closer, please. Closer. The Silence of the Lambs was a phenomenon. $275 million at the global box office and five Academy Awards meant serial killer scripts were hot. Walker's was swiftly snapped up by Arnold Coppelson, who, a couple of years previously, had produced this Oscar-winning picture. Somebody once wrote, hell is the impossibility of reason. That's what this place feels like, hell. I hate it already and it's only been a week. Some goddamn week, Grandma. The hardest thing I think I've ever done is go on point three times this week. I don't even know what I'm doing. A gook could be standing three feet in front of me and I wouldn't know it. I'm so tired. Coppelson approached such actors as Al Pacino, Sylvester Stallone and Denzel Washington. They all said no, as did directors David Cronenberg and Guillermo del Toro. And each time Coppelson got a reject slip, he got Walker to do another draft to lighten the story's very, very dark tone. Walker obliged, and it was then that Coppelson approached David Fincher. The choice of Fincher was curious. He had but one feature film under his belt, the decidedly disappointing Alien 3. Here is Fincher in public interview with The Guardian, recalling his experiences making that film. I made a crucial error. I listened to the people who were paying for the movie, and they said not to work with your friends. The way to go about this is to work with people who've done this time and time and time again. And basically that translates into meet a lot of people who are going to resent you and your age and are not gonna wanna take instruction from you and allow them to tell you what you can't do. So yeah, I signed up naive and went off to Pinewood to be sodomized ritualistically for two years. 
So, if Fincher was perceived as a failure, why did Cobleson make the approach? Because Fincher had secured Alien 3, based on his remarkable visual flair in commercials and pop videos. I signed with a commercial director on Melrose Place named Nesbitt Lee Lacey. We were there, we were ignored, humiliated, and three other directors and I decided to start our own company. And that was propaganda. And we went from billing together about two and a half million dollars a year, and three years later we were billing 65, 75 million dollars a year. And we had the biggest music video commercial company in Hollywood. So Copelson sent Finch the script, and here is the director recounting his initial reaction. And I got to John Doe, walks into the police station and gives himself up. And I was holding the script, like I knew how many pages were left, and I was going, you can't do this. Like this is like this is against the rules. Like so I read to the end and I thought, this is insane. So I called my agent and I said, this head in the box ending is it's unbelievable. How do I he said, Oh my god, I sent you the wrong draft. <laughs> That's the first draft. Finch's original response to Walker's ending gives us an important insight into how genre works. Genre operates through familiarity and variation, providing just enough awareness in the setup so we can get our bearings, but then giving us just enough difference so we don't feel as though we've seen it all before. Which is what Fincher meant when he said he was on page 88 and suddenly John Doe, who until then had not been identified as a suspect, walked into the police station and gave himself up. With 30 pages left and all the detecting done, what else was there left to do? Suddenly, Fincher had no idea what to expect. And if you don't know what to expect, you're pretty much prepared to accept anything can happen. And that was the perfect preparation for the film's unforgettable gut-punch ending. Ernest Hemingway once wrote, The world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. Until seven, pretty much all detective serial killer pictures arrived at the same denouement. The killer was apprehended and order was restored. Seven broke that mould while at the same time upholding it. In order to understand that, we need to take a look at the phenomenon of the serial killer, where it stands in cinema history and how Seven stands out against other examples of the genre. While surely not the first instance of a serial killer, the earliest recorded case can be traced to ancient China when Yu Peng Li, Prince of Zhidong and nephew of Emperor Jing, roamed his estates at night and, with the help of his servants, attacked and killed civilians. It is estimated that Peng Li's victims numbered beyond 100. Yet, while the phenomenon itself is ancient, the term is much younger and can be traced to Germany in 1930, when the director of Berlin Criminal Police, Ernst Gennat, coined the term Serienmorder, translating as serial murder, to describe Peter Curtin. Curtin's frenzied attacks had terrorised the city of Dusseldorf in 1929, and in 1931, Fritz Lang used those horrors as the basis for his masterpiece, M. There, Peter Lorre plays Hans Beckert, a child murderer who was apprehended not by the police, but by the city's criminal underworld. Another reason why M is so central to our discussion is that it is the first police procedural. In developing the story with his then-wife Thea von Harbu, Lang drew on Gennat's 
groundbreaking investigative technique in order to depict how the police troll for clues, chase down leads and build up a profile of a suspect. So exacting was Lang's film that pretty much every police thriller, murder mystery or detective picture ever since sits in its shadow. In one sequence, Lang dramatises the process of detection, interview, interrogation and forensic examination. And all that can be seen in every procedural from The Naked City in 1948, The Big Heat in 53 and In the Heat of the Night in 67, and on through to The French Connection in 71, Manhunter in 86, right up to LA Confidential in 1997. Fincher's movie, released in 1995, retains those patterns, as well as connecting with Lang's film in another way. No fingerprints. Nope. Totally unrelated victims. No witnesses of any kind. M came at the very end of the German Expressionist cycle, a cycle that had started in 1919 with Robert Wiener's eerie masterpiece The Cabinet of Dr Caligari. Before Caligari's release, the dominant film style was realism. German Expressionism rebelled against that. Rather than dramatising the characters' interpersonal conflicts, filmmakers used the screen's very surface to create visual tensions within the frame that would express the characters' states of mind. Stark angles and high contrast lighting evoked deep emotions, mystery and destabilisation. However, while M didn't replicate the expressionist look, it did retain its mood. In that respect, M belongs more in a second important German movement, Die Neue Sachlichkeit, or the new objectivity. Best typified by G.W. Papp's The Joyless Street from 1925, Secrets of the Soul a year later, and The Loves of Jeanne Ney from 1927, the stories focused on society's contemporary ills, but through a more sober lens. So profound were both of these movements that they soon leaked into Hollywood celluloid and helped create a whole new cycle, film noir. Seven is a police procedural in the vein of Lang's M that uses the noir style to express the deep turmoil of the modern world. Have you heard the news? Nope, haven't heard. Eli Gould was found murdered this morning. Someone broke into his law firm and bled him to death. Wrote the word greed on the floor. Greed? Yeah, in blood. It is important to note that while film noir was reflective of a certain masculine malaise in the 1940s and 50s, its emergence was also facilitated by technical innovation. The development of faster film stocks in the 1940s meant that cinematographers could shoot in lower levels of light. Until the late 1930s, most Hollywood productions were shot on plus X film stock. But the arrival of the much faster Super XX in the 40s meant that they could shoot on a weaker rate of light. And however fast Super XX was, in the 1950s, the high-speed negative stock Tri-X meant the image could be even darker. That ultra-dark look was something Fincher wanted to achieve for his film. So together with his cinematographer, Darius Kanji, who had begun as a stills photographer advertising perfume products, they implemented a highly effective technique that meant when the negative was developed in the lab, the silver nitrate, which is usually washed away, was retained. Retaining the silver nitrate desaturates your primary colours, while simultaneously restoring the shadows that would otherwise fade into a low contrast image. In other words, with Seven, you get a washed-out colour palette that not only augments the shadows, it creates shadows within shadows. 
which perfectly suits a story in which the darkness is seeking out an even greater darkness. You know, this isn't going to have a happy ending. It's not possible. Hey, man, we catch him, I'll be happy enough. If we catch John Doe, and he turns out to be the devil, I mean, if he's Satan himself, that might live up to our expectations, but he's not the devil. He's just a man. The most obvious thing that separates Seven from almost all its noir forefathers is the fact that it was filmed in colour, a technique that yielded very unexpected and unsettling results. Production designer Arthur Max worked from a colour palette dominated by two tones, beige and green. Whether together or separate, under the nitrate retention technique, they generate a sense of nausea that is compounded by the city's grime that seems to smother everything. Floors, carpets, tables, books, clothes, windows and dead bodies. Here is a world where everything is dirty, aged and decrepit, in a state of decay that again is an effective corollary of the moral decay that prompts all the murders. If you were chosen, that is, by a higher power, if your hand was forced, it seems strange to me that you would get such enjoyment out of it. You enjoyed torturing those people. This doesn't seem in keeping with martyrdom, does it? John. I doubt I enjoyed it any more than Detective Mills would enjoy time alone with me in a room without windows. Isn't that true? Now, back to that ending. Seven is certainly not the first detective story to end on a downbeat note. In 1959, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo delivered a shockingly grim finale. And in 1974, Roman Polanski's Chinatown suggested something even more devastating. But what those films have in common is that even though the detectives are defeated, they are defeated by forces outside of themselves. Despite failing to bring the villains to book, their efforts do retain a judicial integrity. So at least they failed upholding their moral code. Seven obliterates all that to such a degree that you come away feeling there is no moral code. Walker's premise stems from a character who views himself as above the law, society's personal dispenser of justice, who is not so much a legal enforcer as he is a self-appointed moral avenger. John Doe's serial killer, played by Kevin Spacey, seeks to cleanse society of its ills by turning the sin against the sinner. Gluttony had already eaten his way to such obesity, he deserved to die. Greed had already accumulated such vast wealth, he deserved to die. Sloth, you get the point. But I ask you, whose head is in the box? Tracy Mills, wife of Detective Mills. So why was Tracy murdered? What did she do that warranted such a fate? As Walker set out to write his script, he structured it so that wrath was the final sin. And it was always going to result in the younger, more idealistic officer, Detective Mills, played by Brad Pitt, who would be consumed by fury. In doing so, all Mill achieves is not justice, but a complete subversion of his function as an agent of the law, which, while bleak, is a marvellous premise for a script. A person's character is destroyed by their own fate. And remember, as Greek tragedy tells us, character is fate. So unlike Vertigo or Chinatown, there are no external forces working on Detective Mills just his own choice to shoot John Doe. 
and that brings about his own perdition. Whatever moral code Mills thought he had, he chooses to destroy it. And once you destroy your or any moral code, what do you have left? But whether that is the point of the movie or not, it still does not get us away from the fact that it is Tracy's head in the box. So I'll ask it again, what was her sin? Exactly. Nothing. In creating John Doe, Walker created a monster so obscene, so abject, so devoid of humanity, the killer upends his own crusade and destroys the innocent. Doe's is an evil that ruins everyone. Tracy, her husband and their unborn child. Has there ever been a Hollywood movie that so severely, relentlessly, mercilessly obliterates all sense of morality? Tell me she's all right! Murder a suspect, David. No! Just throw it all away, you know. No! She begged for her life, Detective. Shut up! She begged for her life. Shut up. And for the life of the baby inside of her. Shut up! 